Hi, it's Matt Wee with BibleTruthProject.com, and today we're going to be discussing some Jewish context. We're going to be discussing um, the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to dig into that a little bit more, and um, also discussing um, understanding Jewish context and getting a little bit better handle on it, because I know there's a lot of controversy in the church today over this, what some people call the Jewish stuff, and there's more and more coming out. More and more people are seeing the importance. More and more people are seeing the roots of the faith come back to life, I guess. And so it causes some controversy. And what I like to do is basically discuss some of my journey, I guess, and some of the things that I've run across and how that has changed my views. Um, some of this is in light of a book that I finished writing that's edited and and the next phase is going to be publishing it. And I look on the uh, I look on that book and and I recognize, you know, my life and my journey of discovery and the things that I've seen in the Bible and how it has changed my view from ten years ago when I was in my low twenties and you know, young young married and whatever took my first trip uh, to Israel actually nine years ago. Next summer will be ten years, and how that completely changed so much and as I continue to understand it's like every year there's this just new layer of self or pride that gets peeled off of me and um, one of those things that just happened recently was a podcast I was listening to um, the Jewish apocalyptic or what do they call it the gospel uh, apocalyptic gospel podcast there it is and it was uh, Bill Schofield giving a teaching um, on John 3, and he gives just a context of actually what the conversation meant. And this is the famous conversation where it says you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You must be born of water, spirit, and enter the kingdom of God. And he just breaks down what that meant to the context of him and Nicodemus talking. And it's like totally different than most people understand it. It's like night and day. And it actually makes sense. Before it was always this kind of, well, you know, Nicodemus couldn't understand the, you know, the spiritual thing. Nicodemus couldn't understand, um, you know, the spiritual aspects, whatever. And he was just blind and Jesus was talking over his head and he was, you know, just didn't understand anything. But when you really look at it in context, what he's speaking about is that the kingdom of God is not a fleshly thing. It, it isn't, it doesn't come by man's efforts. Because if you look at understand. Uh, even today, thousands of years later, the Jewish mindset is that we need to merit the coming of the Lord. We need to merit the coming of Messiah, and we need to be worthy of His coming. And you know, we need to do we need to do our part. That's contrasted with the concept that no, 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 God establishes it for His purposes and for His reasons, and with His effort, He's not going to do it on behalf of you know our asking and crying and all that. No, no, no. He's doing it for himself. He's doing it for his purpose. And uh, you cannot, you cannot, uh, you, you have to be born again to to see the kingdom of God. Like, and, and you know, there's, I mean, of course there's a connection there with, uh, there's a connection there with obviously with the change that happens in our lives. But, but notice, it's interesting that Paul never talks about being born again. And the apostles never talk about being born again. And, and in general, and some people say, well, that's, wow, well, you're heresy. No, 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 of course not. There is a new birth. 
that needs to take place. And it's by grace, you know, it's by salvation, it's by acceptance and repentance and all that. Of course, it's a heart change. So again, there's a rebirth. But that's not really what he's talking about here, is that we have to have a new birth experience to see the kingdom of God. And we have, you know, the being born of water and spirit is comes right out of Ezekiel. It's talking about the coming of the kingdom whatsoever, you know, uh, is spiritual. I, I highly... I highly recommend you go listen to that episode and uh, hear what he has to say because what I'm, I, I'll, it clicked and it not only clicked it, it convicted me that you know so often we can have our biases and our views, and it takes humility to be able to to look at yourself and say you know no matter what, how advanced you think you are in your spiritual life that you know what I have understood this wrong. It's not like it's not important to be born again. But it's different. It's a different situation. Yeah, it's the new birth experience, but it's the reviving of our hearts, being born of above, being born from above. That's a, And that is a legitimate experience. But the kingdom is born from above. The kingdom comes not because of man's efforts. It doesn't come because of our sweat and our taking up the sword and... Um, you know, are putting our sweat labor in it. No, we don't build the kingdom of God. It comes. The Father sends us the kingdom and gives us the kingdom. That is the context of the Bible. And that is what the thing that challenged me in this whole thing is when I look at it, and I've struggled in my life to know, you know, what does God want to me to do? And, you know, we need to wrestle with the kingdom and be part of the kingdom and it's in our hands and we have to do it. And when I heard him talking and explaining the kingdom and how it's not flesh and blood. It isn't. It isn't in flesh. It's not in our strength. It's not in our bearing arms. It's not in our uh, efforts. The kingdom of heaven is not about that. The kingdom of heaven, uh, when he when he brings his kingdom to earth, when he asks for it and the Father does it, it's going to be his own doing. He's not going to have human partners in this. When you look at Jesus' return, it's not us like somehow swinging swords around. No, no, no. He's doing it by himself. When he brings this out in his in his podcast, and I think it's absolute dynamite, and it was humbling for me, and, and I recognized all of a sudden is that we, we live our lives for the few moments that God needs our, uh, or God calls us to. It's not for dramatic success and dramatic expansion of the kingdom of God, you know, and, and this earthly concept that, that people used, um, even in the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, the, you know, the Catholics or the popes, whatever, used to, to conquer and establish God's kingdom on earth as though by the sword it comes. No, 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 no. That is not how it comes. The kingdom comes when the Father wants it to come. And of course, he's got plenty of time. He's uh, eternal, so he's not in a hurry. Anyway, so this is an important context because when Jesus comes to Matthew 24... They're asking him some very specific questions. And now I'm going to be reading um, Michael Rood's Chronological Gospels. If you don't know Michael Rood, he's an interesting character, to say the least. I get a kick out of listening to him. I'm not going to say I agree with everything he has to say, but I do think it's uh, I do I do think his Chronological Gospels is interesting. I'm not going to say that it's definitive, but I'll be honest with you, I've not seen anybody do a better job with a chronology and syncing the uh, synoptic gospels up with the chronology, with the proposed chronology. So he's done a tremendous job, and um, I honor him for that. You know, if somebody else has something better to do or comes with something better, 
I'm all ears. I want to hear it. But I, I'm really interested in how he's come up with it. Now, starting in Matthew 23, this is important for us to understand prophecy because Jesus is going to give his discourse on the last days. And this is important because a lot of people don't understand, how would you say it? A lot of people don't understand the, uh, the context and uh, they take this the wrong way. I, I should add that, you know, you, you don't start in Revelation with prophecy and work your way backwards. No, 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 no. You start at the beginning and work your way forwards. And then you end up in Revelation where the apocalyptic imagery supports the fear, supports the words of the prophets. Notice that Jesus, he repeats what the prophets prophesied. And the apostles, in like Acts 3.21, he, he repeat, they repeat the restoration of all things as spoken of by the mouth of the prophets. So the words of the prophets do not somehow get fulfilled and put away. They are yet outstanding, yet to be heard. And when you read them, they contrast. They're a little bit different than the apocalyptic nature of Revelation. And when I say that, it, that's, that's the genre of literature. Anyway, Matthew 23, Jesus is uh, in the temple and he's going to give a he's going to give a sermon on the Temple Mount. So he's up there, and uh, it's not a not a pretty scene. So in Matthew twenty three verse one, after inspecting the treasury, Yeshua addressed the multitude and all of the disciples who were present in the temple court for the last time, saying, "The sages and the Prashim, uh, or the Kohanim, sit in Moshe's seat." Therefore, whatever Moshe commands you to observe, that observe and do. But do not follow the Tekanot and Masai, basically the instructions of, or don't do what they say, but don't do what they do, in other words. For they say, but they do not do. They bind together heavy burdens which are grievous to be borne, and they lay them on men's shoulders that will not lift a finger to help. All of their works they do to be admired of men. They enlarge their phylacteries, lengthen their seat seat. And their talits, they love the places of honor at the feasts and seats of honor in the synagogues and greetings in the public markets, and to be called by men rabbi. Don't allow anyone to call you rabbi, because you have one, you all have just one great Messiah. And you all are all brothers. Do not call any man your father upon the earth. Only one is your father, and he is in heaven. Do not allow anyone call you the teacher, for there is only one who is the teacher, the Messiah. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. He who exalts himself should be abased, and those who humble himself in service to others should be exalted. Of course, there's different versions of the Bible. You guys can use different versions. I typically use TLV, and they have some different words in here and stuff, but the seed of it is the, the, the context, and the content's the same. And this is, uh, we're going to keep going here. <clears throat> Woe to you, sages and scribes and Pharisees, okay, Prashim. You hypocrites, you shut the gate to the kingdom of heaven right in men's faces. You're not going in, neither will you allow those to enter otherwise who would enter in. Now, here's the interesting thing. They're living in a very messianic era. They're living in a, in a time when they think the Messiah is going to come. Uh, it was prophesied that the great light would be seen in the days of the second temple. So it's a very messianic era. And then you had pseudo-messiahs. You had false messiahs that existed in those days. And so they were looking at these different messiahs and expecting signs and wonders because um, that's what a messiahs were supposed to do is these great signs and wonders to validate his messiahship. So he looks at them 
and says, you're not getting the kingdom of God. Now, this is where Christians go off the rails and say, well, it's because Jesus was creating the spiritual kingdom. Uh, not really. So this is important to understand this context. What do you sages and uh, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you devour widows' houses and for a uh, pretense make long prayers. That is why you shall receive the, heart, the harshest judgment. Woe to you, sages and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you traverse land and sea to make a convert, and then you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe to you, you blind, blind guides. You say, whoever shall swear by the temple is not an oath which must be kept, but whoever shall swear by the gold of the temple is obligated to keep the word. You blind fools, what is greater, the gold of the temple? That sanctifies the gold. Now remember, he's saying this as he's in the temple court of the temple. Anyway, I'm going to just fast forward a little bit. He's, he's, he's going unto the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the temple leaders, the sages. He's in the temple. And then, let me just look off here. And then he says this, Look, I'm going to send you prophets to you, wise men and sages. Some of them you will crucify and kill. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may come the responsibility for all the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you slew between the temple porch and the altar. Truth, I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Yerushalayim, you that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered you together? Even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you refuse me. This is important because as a Messiah, he is, his heart is to regather Israel. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. You shall not see me again until you say, Baruch Baruch Shem Adonai. And then Yeshua left. That's a very, uh, very harsh uh, session. Very harsh, harsh sermon that he gave in the temple. Pharisees and Torah scholars. And if you look at that, it's the uh, religious elite, okay, the religious leaders. Jesus said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that is in a hugely important context for the next section of scripture. Okay, so God is, Jesus is obviously going to return to Jerusalem for the Jewish people. That is the context of what he just said. He was speaking to the religious elite, and he said that he will not return until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now begins Matthew 24. As Jesus was departing from the temple, his disciples approached him to show him the construction work of the temple. Jesus said, You see all these things? Truth I tell you. There shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he departed the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Master, see the various kinds of stones and the detailed workmanship. And Yeshua answered him and said, You see these great buildings? There shall not be one stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down. As he stormed out, some of Yeshua's disciples spoke about the temple and how it was being adorned with gifts of beautiful stones. Yeshua said, As for these things, this is Luke 21. Uh, one thing he does in in his book as he syncs the verses together. So Luke 21, he you know again talks about it. As for these things you see, the days will come that there will not be left one stone or another. All three Gospels 
say the same thing. Matthew 24, verse 3. And Yeshua sat on the Mount of Olives, his four disciples, Kepha, Yaakov, Yochanan, and Andrew, came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and the events of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, said, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now the first thing that Jesus warns them about the answers that they're looking for. So what did they ask him about? Okay. They asked him, first of all, when will these things be? Obviously, destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and the events of the end of the age? Now, the first thing that he warns them is deception. He doesn't warn them about destroyers. He doesn't warn them about oppressors. He warns them about deception. To me, that's a very big standout. I've heard a lot of different views about end times eschatology and all sorts of different things. But the biggest warning that Jesus gives is deception. But it's not just deception. It's deception of a certain kind. And we're going to keep reading and we'll understand. What is the deception? Many will come in my name. Acknowledging that I am Messiah, yet they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and threats of wars. Do not be terrorized. All the things must come to pass, but the very end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in many places, and all those are just the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to be afflicted. They will kill you. You'll be hated of all nations because of me. And at that time, many will be caught in the snare that has been set. And they will hate one another, betray one another. Many false teachers. I'm going to just grab my TLV here. Sorry, I like the wording better. Why is that important? Because Rude, um, he does use some liberties there that I'm not crazy for. Let me just get this here just a second. It's great from a study standpoint, but I wouldn't read it as my primary Bible. Um, be careful that no one's leaves, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and will lead many astray. I think it's important to distinction. Rude talks about preaching in his name, if you will, but uh, this is speaking about um, saying these are false messiahs, in other words. You will hear of wars, rumors of war, see that you are not alarmed, for this must happen, but it is not yet the end. For a nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Famines, earthquakes, all this is just birth pain. So there's a lot of wars, and if you know Daniel 8 through 11, you'll know what we're talking about. There's a lot of wars that have to take place. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And then many will fall away, and betray one another, and hate one another. So, this is interesting. Fall away, betray one another, hate one another. Then this is what he warns. False prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because the lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the good news of the kingdom. This good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed. The whole world is a testimony to all nations and the end will come. Now, what does that mean? This good news of the kingdom. I hear so many people kind of mess this up. 
what is the good news of the kingdom? That we can be forgiven from our sins and saved from our sins and that Jesus has brought us or bought us in a spiritual way, you know, that we can be overcomers in this body. Well, that's all true, but that's not the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is the good news of the kingdom. It's going to come. A kingdom established by God himself on earth. Greater than the United States. Greater than all other kingdoms. This is the good news. There is a kingdom coming that God himself will be the king. Not built by humans. Not built by man. His kingdom will come. Okay? It is not our kingdom. We're not building it. He is coming and he will establish his throne. Okay, this is an important distinction. This is the context of these verses. So we want to say, well, we're part of the kingdom of heaven. Well, absolutely we are. But the kingdom of heaven will become, uh, will come down and become the kingdom of this world. And that is fully in line with the Jewish apocalyptic expectation. The kingdom of God, obviously, is Israel and was when God was their king back in the days of David. It was, uh, or before David, and then Samuel had to anoint David as a king as a earthly king, because before that, God was their king. So this kingdom had already been, but it needs to be reestablished. And that is what the good news of the kingdom is all about. So the good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony. Then the end shall come. So when you see the abomination of desolation, obviously it's a clear reference to Daniel 12, which is spoken through the Daniel of the prophets, stand in the holy place, then those in Judea must flee the mountains. In other words, the end time scenario starts with the abomination of desolation. That's a very specific thing. So if you look at Daniel 12, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you'll understand that that is tied to the anti-Messiah standing in the holy place, the temple, and declaring himself to be God. That is the abomination. If you read Revelation about the beast, you see the same imagery. The one on the roof must not go down and take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing those days. Pray that your escape will not happen in winter or on the Shabbat. So there's a legitimate concern for when they can get out because this is going to be a big deal. For then there will be great trouble such as has not happened since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days be cut short, no one will be delivered. But for the sake of the chosen which is Israel, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe. It's interesting that he lays this out, abomination of desolation, and it's in those days when we're to get out of Israel, if you will, those are the days when if somebody says, oh, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. Why? Because false prophets and false messiahs. Interesting. One of the most important things about this reference is these are pseudo-messiahs. This is not what is known as antichrist or, or, or antichristos. Okay? This is pseudo-christos. Jesus does not warn about antichristos. He warns about pseudo-christos. This is important because it's only in John that he writes about antichrists or, or, or antichristos. But Jesus himself uses the word pseudo-Christos, okay? Do not believe it. For if anyone says to you, look, here is Mashiach, or there he is, that is in the days of the image, of the abomination of desolation, don't believe it. So his warning about a Messiah figure in those days, he says, don't believe it. 
for false messiahs and false prophets. Now here he uses a plural sense, which is interesting to me. I've never heard anybody prophesy, or not prophecy, study pro- who studies prophecies, who looks at multiple messiahs existing in that time frame. But I think it's interesting. Don't believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will rise up. Now that's important because in Revelation, the two beasts, the first beast and then the second, one is the, the Antichrist, second is the false prophet, totally correlates with Jesus is saying here. So false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and show great signs and wonders so to lead astray. So they are false messiahs and false prophets, and the purpose of them rising is to show signs and wonders to lead astray. He, They are going to lead astray. That is what Jesus' warning is. He doesn't warn them about other outsiders coming in who are going to destroy them. He warns them about false messiahs and false prophets. You can't get away from that in Scripture. It's right there. Why? If possible, even the chosen uh, to lead astray, if possible, even the chosen. So he, it's he's trying to lead Israel astray, the false prophets, if you will, and fo- uh, false messiahs. So if they say, look to you, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes from the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, you're going to, need to be able to see it. For wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the trouble of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Why? Why is that important? Because that's the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. Okay? Look at verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. When they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a great shofar. So blasting of the shofar. And gather together his chosen. That's us. That's the Thessalonian reference with the harpazo being caught up. That's at his coming, okay? Just before his final wrath is poured out. And they will gather together his chosen from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Now learn the peril from the fig tree. When the branches become tender, puts leaves, you know summer is near. And when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. In other words, you see the fruit of it and evidence of it, you're going to be getting, know that we're close. It's Israel-centric, okay? We have to, when I mean Israel-centric... I mean, this is an Israel problem, okay? This is an Israel-Jewish problem. This is not a American problem. This is not a European problem. This is an issue that will happen within Israel. If you're going to take this literally. Now, amen, I tell you, this generation, I believe he's referring to the generation that's alive in this time frame. This generation will not pass away until all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will never pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, except the Father alone. Now, some people say, well, that doesn't mean we don't know the season. Of course, I think we know the season. It's going to be through the fall feasts of the Lord. It's going to fulfill that. So we do know the season. We just don't know the day or hour. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen. We don't even know the year it's going to happen because the Father is the only one who knows. So don't look, don't look, don't know the exact day. We're not going to know. We do know it will be, um, it will happen. For just in the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And did not understand the flood uh, until the flood came and swept them away, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. Then the two men will be in the field, one taken. That's, some people want to use that allusion to rapture, but what's being pulled out here is actually the tares. Um, and then it goes on, faithful servant. Talks about being faithful. 
talks about ten virgins being prepared, talks about talents, Jesus giving the reward, talks about a righteous judge who will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. Personally, I think that has to do with separating uh, Israel from the nations. Um, and that's kind of the gist of Matthew 24. Let's just look at some comparisons here. Um, In Luke 21, 7, Mark 13 talks about deception again, wars, I'm just scanning over here. When will these things occur? What will be the sign of when these things are about to come to pass? She said, listen carefully so that you will not be deceived by anyone. Many one will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and the time of my coming is imminent. Do not follow them. You'll hear of wars and worldwide instability, but do not be terrified. These things must come to pass, but still the end is not immediately forthcoming. Then there's, and I wonder if that's the allusion to Daniel 8, personally, because there's this big kind of set of wars that causes a lot of instability, and then you've got another set of wars which kind of follows. I kind of have the feeling that's what's going on. Um, just scan through here. Again, abomination of desolation as the central theme. See the abomination is spoken by the Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not. Then let those who are in Yehudia, Judah, flee to the mountains. Let him that is on the housetop not go down to the house, neither there enter there and to take anything out of his house. Luke 21, but when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then know that the devastation thereof is near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the land depart. So anyway, this is important. Now, I mean, he does speak about Jerusalem being surrounded with armies. And we cannot ignore that because that obviously is going to take place. And there is a uh, pressure. If you look at Daniel 12, there's a king of the south who comes up and attacks and literally almost destroys Israel. And that is the context of Matthew 24. Now, some people want to say that uh, Gog Magog is that same conflict. And if you want to study Gog Magog, it's a little bit more intense. There's a little bit more going on with Gog Magog than there is with this conflict. This conflict, as I understood it, is, is the conflict of Harmoed. You could use the word Harmageddon, okay, Har, Harmageddon. Um, and I think, I think it's important to understand that context. It's the battle for Jerusalem. It's not the battle for Amman, Jordan. It's not the battle for Egypt. It's not the battle for um, Belgium, <laughs> What's another capital? Paris, uh, London. It's not. It's the battle for Jerusalem. And Jesus doesn't warn about Christ, false Christians. <laughs> he warns about false messiahs. The messiahs are very specific. They're Jewish messiahs. Some people say, well, they are, wow, that is anti-Semitic. Of course not. I'm not an anti-Semite. Of course not. Jesus is, Jesus is Jewish. 
love Jews. All the apostles are Jewish. They're awesome. But it's like anybody else in this world, there are good people and bad people. And unfortunately, some bad people are going to come into power that are going to deceive people into thinking that the kingdom of God has come and they will want to join this kingdom and, and they will force, you know, the, this anti-Messiah is going to force people to submit to his religion and to his authority and to his false religion. And he's not God, he's a man, but he will call himself God. That's the whole Thessalonians thing. So, anyway, I think that's enough for this session. gives enough to think about. I just want people to understand the context. You understand the context. It makes all the difference in the world. I mean, Jesus is speaking to Jewish men on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem just after he said, Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said that just after he said to the Torah scholars and Pharisees that upon them the righteous bloodshed on the earth would be um, blamed on them. And it's like... Those are harsh things to say. It almost sounds like Jesus was anti-Semitic. Of course not. He was Jewish. He loved his people, but he doesn't like evil. And there is a right and there is a wrong. And people make choices no matter of your ethnicity. There's evil people in the United States. There's good people in the United States. There's good people in Israel. There's bad people in Israel. Just because somebody's Jewish doesn't give you an automatic ticket. Just because somebody is any ethnicity doesn't give you an automatic ticket. There are... Historically, there were false messiahs who claimed to be Messiah who were not the Messiah. They, they were wicked. It's not right. It's not right to claim to be the Messiah. It's not right to claim his throne in Jerusalem. He will come and he will sit on his throne. Not a usurper. And I think that is, um, I think it's important. I think that what we're dealing with in the anti-Messiah is we're not dealing with somebody within Israel. I believe it's somebody from outside who will come and claim to be the Jewish Messiah. And I think he'll have to have some Jewish ancestry. And I think by then, genetics, whatever, he could be <clears throat> a lot of different ethnicities. I think based on, I think it's, is it Zephaniah? I have to look it up. It talks about the sons of Yavan or the sons of Greece. So he could be a Greek. He could be a, a Western Turkish individual who, you know, with a DNA test can prove that he has Jewish blood. And he come, you know, after he fights, he then comes in and says, "Hey, look, I'm a Jew. I'm your Messiah. I'm the guy, uh, the King of the North, if you will." And he comes in and claims to be their Jewish savior. And they don't fight back. Some of them know, some of them resist, but the majority do not. The majority accept him and say, "This is awesome. This is an outside guy who likes Israel." So, I mean, I don't. It's just not that far fetched. It isn't. You can say, "Well, it's anti-Semitic." No, it's not. It's not because Jesus did not warn about Gentile invaders. He warned about false Mashiachs, okay? Pseudo-Christos. He warned about false prophets, okay? What is a prophet in the mind of a Jew? A Jewish prophet. And there were false prophets throughout the Old Testament. There were false messiahs in the second temple period this is all stuff the jews have seen before it's not anti-semitic it's just the part of the story and the narrative so anyway hope you be blessed i know some people might differ with some of this that's okay i'm i'm not saying i know the truth i'm on a journey just like everybody else i try to understand and wrestle with it if people have better understanding i'm not going to be so arrogant i mean i've changed my views over the years so 
as the Lord shows me truth, I walk in truth. And, and he has led me to understand that what he means is what he says. When he warns of false messiahs, he's referring to false messiahs. He's not referring to outsiders. He's referring to somebody who could convince people that he, they are, he is a messiah. And that is what he explicitly warns. So anyway, um, be blessed. And hopefully this will have stirred some thoughts. And you guys can comment or whatever you like and give me some feedback. And uh, yeah, I think that's it for this episode.